You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is uh, May 20th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and this is a Meditation and Attachment. Uh, deepening your practice, uh, we've been talking about the preliminary practices, which I really think of as the attachment work, uh, so that you can uh, stabilize your life, that you can put around yourselves these uh, support teams of people that will really uh, support uh, your exploration. And then what I like to talk about is uh, a path to uh, enlightenment that uh, becomes a part of that uh, exploration that you do. Um, I'm a Metta Vipassana teacher, and so I'm talking about the Theravada path. That's the, the framework. But my longtime teacher, Shinzen uh, Young, of course, uh, who claims to be a, a Vipassana teacher, but really is a mashup teacher uh, who teaches uh, Zen and uh, Vajrayana and uh, Theravada practices, all sort of rolled up into secular mindfulness, uh, if you know how to decode it. Um, so, but I'd like uh, uh, Dharma maps. I've, I've had this conversation with Shinzen over and over again, um, and we never settled it at all. Um, and in fact, the last time I brought it up, it, it was he was an emphatic, we got an emphatic response from him, which was he put out a, 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 a manual um, of meditation and I, raised my hand and said, Chinzen, couldn't you describe your manual as a path? And he said, no, <laughs> there are no circumstances. Is it a path? <laughs> Is it a map, I mean? It's a path, but not a map. Uh, so, um, but the map that I, I describe is the 16 stages of insight. Uh, and the reason that I like it is because it, it is one of the, I don't have to transliterate it. It literally was the, what my experience of practice was without knowing what the map was. And so once I found the map and realized that my own experiences of doing those uh, techniques uh, that Shinzen was teaching <coughs> unfolded in that way, uh, it, it made sense to me to describe it as a way of something that I understand through my own experience of it and also uh, 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 taking in the, the traditional teaching of it. One of my main teachers now is Dan Brown, who's a, a Vajrayana teacher. He's in the Bon uh, lineage of Rime. Rime is a newer uh, uh, lineage. It's about 200 years old. And, and he, Dan calls it the greatest hits of Tibetan Buddhism. So they, they pull out the practices that they think are the most salient for each of the insights that you're supposed to have along the way. And, um, and I like to teach Shinzen's techniques uh, adapted uh, to the, the map of the 16 stages. This map is based on uh, the four path model of uh, liberation, which is based on the eradication of the 10 fetters. And so uh, what you have in Buddhism, of course, is a lot of lists because it was in world tradition for so long until you have these lists that come down. The four path model of liberation in, in the Theravada sense is quite different than the other lineages. Um, 
the four path model means that, uh, or the first path is uh, stream entry. The second is uh, the weakening of craving and aversion. The third is the elimination of craving and aversion. And the fourth is uh, our hardship or complete liberation. And it's tied to this map of the 10 fetters, <coughs> this map of the 10 fetters. Um, in the, the 10 fetters are uh, different uh, obscurations or obstacles to seeing clearly the, the nature of, of this uh, human experience. Um, in stream entry, you eliminate the first three fetters, uh, which is uh, a belief in religious ceremony uh, as the same as enlightenment. Uh, the elimination of the belief in a solid, continuous, unchanging self-experience, and the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. Um, <coughs> this is a particular type of doubt, skeptical doubt, that the path leads to liberation. In um, the 16 stages, uh, Stream entry comes from the experience of cessation. And when you go into the experience of cessation, what we're talking about is the cessation of awareness. You come from a place of equanimity into cessation. And then when you come out of cessation, there's an experience of watching the sensing experience form. It typically is described as starting with sound and then visual experience completely non-attached, non-fixated, and then uh, watching the process of fixation happening. <clears throat> and in seeing in that moment of going from the undifferentiated self into the fixated self, uh, that the self-experience is completely absent in one state and then completely present in another. You have the insight that uh, the self is not substantial. That's where that comes from. In uh, the second path, uh, which is also described as having a cessation event, um, the effects of craving and aversion are weakened, but not eliminated. And it's only in the third path that craving and aversion are eliminated. This is also tied into the Buddhist teaching around reincarnation. In stream entry, you were said to reincarnate seven more times. In the second path, the weakening of craving and aversion, uh, the um, <clears throat> one more time. And then once you reach the third path where you've eliminated, uh, eliminated craving and aversion, you're no longer reincarnated. This is a contrast really to uh, the Mahayana teachings where the Bodhisattva vow is often in play where you make the, the intention to be continuously reincarnated until all sentient beings are liberated. In the Theravada or the Hinayana school, that isn't actually present in, in the teachings. You're really going for your own liberation and not restraining that uh, for the liberation of all beings. Um, <clears throat> what then is in enlightenment and then each of the different schools of Buddhism tend to describe it differently. In uh, 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 
Theravada Buddhism, it's the elimination of these 10 fetters. So you'll notice in the first three paths, we managed to eliminate five of the 10. And then at our hardship is when you eliminate the remaining five of the path. So uh, restlessness and agitation, uh, the craving for material existence, the craving for non-material existence and conceit uh, are eliminated when you become an arhat. Do you ever have the sense of, oh, what a brilliant meditator I am. I've just had a perfect sit. <laughs> um, I've attained so much in my practice, all of that stuff that we, if you get into it, some people practice meditation like a competition. Uh, and, you know, we call it state envy, where you, somebody gets into a state and they describe it, and then you're consumed by uh, envy that you haven't actually had that same experience. <laughs> <coughs> Um, if you have a relationship with a teacher and the teacher and you have enough contact with the teacher that, that they're able to evaluate where your path is, where, where your practice is and give you the instructions of what to do next, uh, that can be very useful um, and may eliminate the need for a map. But uh, if you don't have that kind of constant relationship, uh, it might be useful to look at a map and see whether or not you can work with it without a lot of transliteration. What I mean is that your experiences are in line with what the map is suggesting are experiences that you have from meditation. One of the things to understand about this is that you tend to have the kind of insights that come from the kind of practice that you do. And one of the things about having a smorgasbord of meditation and spiritual teachings that are largely disconnected from their sources is that you can get into a series of practices that produce these interesting uh, states, uh, but they aren't organized in a way that helps you move uh, toward uh, really seeing clearly what, is, what it is that is meant by these uh, terms liberation or freedom. Uh, Christian, I'm I'm curious what if you have an understanding of what Shinzen's aversion to the to the map idea is. Is it just like that's not really a Zen thing, or or I mean, no, no. Um, I can tell you uh, uh, what he yells at me when I ask him <laughs> is that uh, the maps aren't universal. Some people have to transliterate them in order to the map to make sense. And he's looking for toe theory of everything. He wants a map that's universally uh, usable by all people. Um, I don't have that uh, need. And so uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, uh, frustrate me particularly that some maps make sense to me and some maps don't make sense to me. I'm more inclined uh, to take the easier approach, which is to simply go with the maps that work for me and leave all the other maps uh, alone. Um, uh, <clears throat> Dan also teaches maps in a way. Uh, uh, when you go in to do his level one courses, uh, the first part of the 
the practice is the elephant path, uh, which is a, a practice for developing access concentration. We have the concept of access concentration in a Theravada Buddhism as well. Um, in fact, uh, when I decided that I would go sit with them, I was really enthused and really excited about the possibility that there would be a map that was completely different than any of the ones that I explored. And it was a crushing uh, disappointment when I got there that they were so similar. Uh, now, the practices are quite different. Uh, Dan said, why would you go with the first turning of the wheel when you could go with the third turning of the wheel? So why go with Hinayana, Theravada Buddhism, the first turning of the wheel? Not really too much attention. Oh, excuse me. <coughs> Not really too much attention to the second turning of the wheel, Zen, but to the third turning of the wheel, the Vajrayana practice. <coughs> And so I said, I'm just trying to get across the street. I don't need to beam up to the spaceship and then beam down on the other side of the street, <laughs> which he did not think was funny. Uh, so um, the other thing about all of this, of course, is that um, <clears throat> there's authorizations and there's communities around teachings and teachers uh, need to exist in those communities. And so in, in the community of teaching where I actually have any standing, this is the map that, that is uh, used and not, not the other maps. <coughs> um, if you want to explore deeply this map, the, there's a book called uh, Manual of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw, which was uh, translated by the Vipassana, Vipassana Meta Foundation um, Translation Committee. And um, one of the, the consultants that they use is the teacher that I have in, in uh, Myanmar, Wu Indukaseyadao, who talked about <coughs> so the Meta Vipassana practices. <coughs> Excuse me. I like to say, I, I like the Meta Vipassana approach to practice um, mainly because um, coming up in the way that I did and the way that I learned uh, to regulate my emotions, I was a savage with myself in terms of my own internal dialogue. And to go and in the early days of practice when metta was really not offered too much and it was straight uh, insight practice, straight vipassana practice, um, it was very difficult to touch into these difficult experiences around my conditioning um, and then not have any good way of regulating that experience and then just not meditating anymore until I, I came back into regulation. Um, the way that I began to deal with those, that, that savage self-criticism was by using metta practice. <clears throat> but I was already you know, years into my Vipassana practice by the time it really even appeared on my radar. But then going uh, into uh, Mahasi's uh, formulation of metta Vipassana, where you develop uh, metta jhana as a way of 
developing the capacity to concentrate and also as a refuge so that if the Theravada, the Vipassana side of practice heats up and gets uh, distressing that you have a place to go that will cool you down and allow you to continue practicing so you don't interrupt the practice. So what happened over and over again in the beginning of my practices, it was too painful and I stopped practicing. And then the suffering that I was trying to relieve by practicing rose up and became too painful. And so I, I always felt like I was in a between a rock and a hard place in terms of practice. I could go into practice or I could back off from practice. Um, Shinzen used to say that uh, it's always that balance of bearing down and backing off. But if backing off doesn't work, then you're sort of stuck with having to bear down. But when you add the metta vipassana uh, approach, you don't have to uh, uh, back off uh, and not meditate. You can simply uh, uh, retreat into uh, high concentrated positive states and allow the, the distressing experiences to, to arise and pass from that position of, of uh, positivity. And so that actually has been very useful. And I know in, in teaching meditation, when uh, I used to teach mainly Vipassana retreats, the first two or three days of the retreat, everybody was in distress from touching into the, the, the internal experience in an unfiltered way. But as soon as uh, we shifted to the, the metta vipassana model, that really rarely comes up. And so people can come in, get concentrated, get uh, intensely positive, and then go in a fearless way into the vipassana side of practice. And even if it's really upsetting, they have the confidence that they can then pull back into the, the side and foster the, the positivity of, of the heart practices uh, to come back into balance and then uh, go again into the Vipassana side of things. So it in some sense speeds it up, even though <clears throat> in the beginning you're learning these uh, diverse practices. And <clears throat> Christian, I'm curious, uh, the, the Shinzen uh, Vipassana practices seem like they were things that he developed. Um, and maybe I have that wrong, but is that similar to how they practice Vipassana in, in Myanmar? Uh, not really <laughs> related to well. So in, <clears throat> in Myanmar, uh, the Mahasi method is the continuously noting method. Um, and so, um, uh, raising my hand, raising my hand, turning my hand, turning my hand, reaching for the cup, reaching for the cup, lifting the cup, lifting the cup, taking a sip of tea, taking a sip of tea, putting the cup back down, withdrawing my hand from the cup, putting my hand back on the lap, continuously noting. That's the uh, traditional Mahasi method. Um, <clears throat> And, and uh, Shinzen, uh, I think, will say that he didn't develop see, hear, feel. He refined see, hear, feel. One of the things about being a meditation teacher, of course, is that people express their experience of how they're meditating. And from your perspective of the, the teacher, you can see things that, are, that might be really useful if they were uh, refined and, and, and broadly used. Um, and then, uh, then, then developed 
and from there. Uh, one of the things that's useful about having a teacher that actually is practicing and pursuing their own path is that they keep discovering things on, on their own, from their own personal practices. They then can feed back into the teaching. Uh, sometimes in the West, you encounter teachers who have long since abandoned their own practice and are simply uh, inhabiting the teacher role. Um, and, and, and so what you'll notice in those kinds of teachings is that they stay relatively the same um, <coughs> and often don't evolve. As your own experience gets deeper and deeper, of course, you can see things more clearly. And from that place of more clarity, you can describe them in a way that, that uh, is more communicative of practice. <coughs> so what I thought I would do is over the course of the next few weeks or so, begin to talk about this map and then to offer practices that illustrate the, the, the spots on the map um, one of the things about um, moving through the map is you move very quickly into <clears throat> areas that are really advanced practice. And so that if you don't have a practice that's that developed, it becomes theoretical rather than something that you can actually do through practice. You don't get the direct experience of it because you can't yet uh, do the practices that you would need to do to see them, it isn't so much that you can't do the practice, but you don't have the resolution uh, to see clearly what it is that's being pointed out. And so it begins to become a, a, a cognitive uh, practice rather than a direct experiential practice. So I'm not gonna go too much uh, further than the first uh, eight uh, stages or 10 stages. So a little bit uh, around half of the map. Um, purification of conduct is the first uh, 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 step to come into uh, practice. And I've described this most, most of my teaching life as you make a decision to be a good person. You make a decision to lead an ethical life. Uh, and in um, householders, lay practitioners, the that decision is to take the five precepts and practice them in your daily life. So uh, the practice uh, to refrain from killing, the practice to refrain from uh, uh, <clears throat> divisive speech, the practice to refrain from sexual conduct that is harmful, the practice to refrain from uh, lying, and the practice uh, to, ref to refrain from the use of intoxicants. The mind is saying, I didn't get the list right, but um, <clears throat> no, uh, sorry. The fourth one is uh, taking things that are not uh, freely offered. <coughs> it's an interesting thing. Himsa is the word in, in Pali for the first one, uh, not, uh, take, not killing, not taking life. When we were in Myanmar, uh, somebody raised their hand uh, and asked the Sayadaw if it were appropriate to practice metta uh, for uh, a dog. 
because uh, they, they couldn't find metamine and associate it with any people that they knew. And the Sayadaw said that it was not appropriate to do that because dogs are not sentient and the practice is intended only for sentient beings. So the inhibition around killing is not to kill sentient beings, which then allows the, the slaughter of uh, animals uh, for consumption. Um, teachers uh, like Tetnat Han describes uh, all beings as uh, sentience as being widely distributed throughout um, uh, our world. Um, and uh, there was some interesting research around that. <clears throat> they uh, wanted to uh, test whether animals could recognize themselves, which they used as a sign of sentience. And so they put a red dot on the nose of all sorts of different animals and then put a mirror in front of them. <clears throat> some animals would see the red dot and just wipe it off. And some animals would not see the red dot. And so they wouldn't uh, make an attempt to re remove it, which was one of their basic tests of sentience. If you, did you ever have uh, parakeets when you were a kid or little bungees? They often put a mirror in a cage with a bungee because when the, the bungee sees the, their own reflection, they think it's a different bird and they, they attack it and it makes a kind of uh, active uh, bird. Um, it's an interesting thing about this first piece about killing. <clears throat> If we would accept that a cow was sentient, then the, the prohibition against killing would mean you couldn't kill a cow. Um, if that was true of a pig, you couldn't kill a pig. And so how do we make this decision to be ethical in the way that we live? Uh, and what kind of slides uh, in cognition do we use to get around these, uh, these uh, things? It is a practice to become an ethical person. Um, we all come out of our family systems with the ethics that our family system teaches us. <clears throat> Most people, uh, I would guess, uh, grow up in, uh, in homes uh, where the diet includes animal products. Um, I talk about it uh, from my own uh, practice, uh, mainly from the environmental uh, aspect of it. Climate change is upon us, and the, the, the circumstances of that are evident constant. Can we really take that in and then understand that so much of what is driving climate change is anim animal agriculture? And can we then allow that construct to exist, uh, or do we have to in some way adjust it so that we can tolerate it? <clears throat> So it's a practice where you investigate it. Do you like to gossip? Um, it's one of those fun things, right? Uh, and then is it malicious or is it just a source of entertainment or in some sense, a kind of connection? Um, uh, but how controlled are you around your speech? Um, and, and do you find yourself uh, free to reveal what you want to and withhold what you want to uh, and never have that sense of uh, of having over uh, revealed and, and the, the emotional reactions that come from that. <clears throat> how uh, 
clear is your sexual expression from exploitation or the causing of harm? And are you responsible there for your conduct? <clears throat> we live in, in a culture that is very uh, inhibited and restricted around this. And people come out of childhoods uh, often with uh, you know, uh, disabled or, or um, distorted perceptions of uh, sexual conduct. Um, one of the things that I uh, use to describe it is that we're all born with this slick, shiny, beautiful sports car of a sexual orientation, but by the time we're old enough to drive, it's a beat up old jalopy because of all the dings that come along. Uh, did you happen to be prototypically heterosexual in a community that uh, only endorsed that or, or did you find that there was uh, variations to that? Did you turn out to be uh, uh, your native uh, gender identity? Uh, was it in compliance with the gender identities that were imposed on you or did it not really fit? And what was the consequences of that to your own image of that? And, and then how did that distort your capacity to express that in relationships to others? So there's that uh, exploration <coughs> and then the shifting of that. So I really think of these as kinds of uh, the preliminary practices really are to get this clear, that's what the attachment work is for that you can really get in there and open this stuff up and free yourself of the distortions and the, 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 um, the distorted views that come from conditioning and uh, come into this place where you really can uh, embrace uh, an ethical way of being in the world. Uh, lying is the other one. No, sorry, lying comes under speech stealing, taking what is not offered. This is a, often a relationship to power. In our culture, uh, um, minimum wage employers are having trouble attracting workers. I don't know if you follow the headlines. And so the Republican side of our country wants to eliminate unemployment benefits so that people are destitute and have no choice but to accept minimum wage jobs. And uh, the democratic side wants to continue the unemployment benefits and raise the minimum wage. <clears throat> there was a, a piece in the paper that I read that the 725 uh, uh, pay rate is having a terrible time attracting enough people at $15 an hour, uh, um, much less so. At $20 an hour, there's no trouble finding employees. Uh, $25 an hour, no problem. $30 an hour, no problem. Uh, and so uh, what is the, the, the real issue there? Um, So the, the last one is sometimes um, tricky for people uh, not to engage in 
imbibing uh, intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. What is heedlessness in fact? Um, and then how much do you uh, have to use? We do have quite a, an issue with addiction in this country uh, and around the world. And so maybe if you substitute addiction, then you could expand it more broadly to process addictions and also uh, substance addiction. But is there a point where the use of any intoxicant or any uh, process addiction, a process uh, to uh, um, feel a sense of uh, elation would distort your capacity to perceive what it is that you need to perceive in order to proceed toward your own enlightenment. And if that were the case, then could you curtail it? This again points to these preliminary practices of emotional regulation and uh, repairing that early attachment conditioning so that you don't need to uh, auto-regulate through the use of uh, substances and processes. <clears throat> and then the second uh, prerequisite for entering into the path is uh, called purification of mind. And this is the process of developing concentration. One of the things that I noticed when I started teaching meditation uh, in uh, meditation centers in communities where people did not go on retreat they often did not have the basic level of concentration to do a Vipassana technique. Uh, so many of you who sat with me or sat with Shinzen know the basic see here field technique, which um, I would describe as pretty simple and straightforward and uh, that uh, uh, people should be able to pursue that. Uh, but teaching in the meditation center that I was teaching at, people did not have enough concentration to actually be able to do the see here field technique. And so it wasn't an experience of uh, seeing clearly what needed to be seen. It was an experience of frustration at not being able to do the technique. And so you really do need to evaluate where your uh, capacity to concentrate, concentrate is and then to intentionally develop the level of concentration that you need. Um, we often talk about this as a wet Vipassana or a dry Vipassana practice, a wet Vipassana practice being the intentional cultivation of concentration and the dry practice being going straight into the Vipassana side. Shinzen, when I started to sit with him, was a dry Vipassana teacher. There was no uh, intentional development of concentration. You just started to do the, the technique. They were different uh, when I started uh, 22 years, 23 years ago. How long has it felt that we started sitting with Shinzen? It was 93 for me, so 28 years. Yeah, 28 years. You see, I can't even count. <laughs> <laughs> um, So what I began to do is teach breath counting as a, a, a preliminary practice to enter into a Vipassana um, so that you had enough concentration to be able to do the technique. So we develop it in the Metta Vipassana model of developing it. You first start with breath counting until you can do a basic uh, Metta practice and then you, you develop Metta Jhana to come into high concentration. 
in Dan's practice, of course, jhana is completely, <coughs> jhana practice is completely unnecessary and, and a false path. But you really only need access concentration. And because I like to describe things as discrete skill sets, what I think of as the of what access concentration is to be able to count up and down to 10 at the end of the outbreath only for a period of 10 minutes without getting caught up in thinking and losing the count once. That is not a high level of concentration. It's a basic level of concentration. But if you can't do it, then it, it can appear lofty. But really, if you do a basic uh, intentional practice around developing concentration, it doesn't take that long to get there, a few months maybe. Um, even, uh, I often hear from uh, students that they have ADD or ADHD, and it really is simply a tra that training might take more rigor and more uh, oomph, but you still can train the mind even with that to concentrate. And you'll need to do that in order to proceed into the next phase, which is called purification of view. And purification uh, <coughs> of view means that you can see clearly how it is, what this human condition is. And um, knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena is the insight that we are going for in this uh, practice. To see clearly the difference between the sensing experience and the knowing what the sensing experience is. Um, uh, Dan would describe that as I consciousness sees light and form, and I mind consciousness sees the chair or the bed or the statue of the Buddha, that the light and form form when mind uh, reflects uh, or attaches meaning to what it is. So the pure sensing experience, the physical phenomena is just that, pure unattached uh, sensing. <coughs> In English, attached, non-attached is one of the, the ways that we distinct, distinguish it, but it doesn't mean the same thing as attachment when we talk about the attachment function. And so it's often this problem with translating Pali or Sanskrit into English and using the same word uh, to describe completely unrelated things. Um, so one of the joys of the see here field technique is it's dividing uh, uh, sensory experience into these three broad domains that are fairly easy to grasp. In traditional uh, Buddhist practice, it's the five aggregates or the five skandhas, which is what you're looking at. And, and uh, the categories uh, are not so clear uh, and easy to distinguish. You're free uh, to look them up. Um, so when we begin this technique uh, of dividing things, uh, we're broadly dividing them into visual experience, auditory experience, and then the felt sense of the body. The felt sense of the body includes taste and smell. Uh, so we take the five basic senses that we all know and, and reduce them into three objects. Uh, and then we note them. We uh, allow our attention to be drawn to whatever is interesting. 
And then we note that. We know where our attention is, which is the function of mind, the sixth sense in Buddhism. We know whether we're in visual experience, in auditory experience, or the felt sense of the body. We soak into the sensing experience of that. And then we generate the single word label uh, that corresponds to that. So we, the noting and labeling process. <clears throat> noting, uh, you can do with or without labeling, but most of the time at the end of the day in householder practice, using the labeling is helpful because it tends to boost uh, concentration. It activates a different part of the brain than the noting part. So your, your brain is more engaged in the activity of um, practice. We just really want to be able to see clearly that the sensing experience is one experience and the making the sensing experience into something is another experience. In the beginning, without having this insight, we tend to think we're seeing a chair, we're seeing a lamp, we're seeing a book. We don't have uh, the resolution to experience the sensing of it as different from what we make it into. So that's really this first uh, entrance into the, the, the 16 stage path. This is the first path. Christian. I, I guess I didn't realize that I had a question about the difference between the noting and the labeling. Would you say the noting is like when you have a non-conceptual awareness of where you are, and then the, the labeling would be like, you know, see in or something like that? Uh, the label would be what, it, what corresponds to where your attention is, uh, but that's way past the, this initial insight into uh, this is the sensing, this is knowing what the sensing is. So what's the, what's the noting then? Noting means that you're, you're noting your experience, <clears throat> marking it. Uh, so you know where your attention is, and then you soak into the sensing experience of it. One of the things about consciousness is it, it, it runs behind what's actually happening. You could say, I'm, I'm sensing and then I'm fixating it into something. That's the experience of the unconscious portion of your experience. But because consciousness runs a half a second behind, that process is almost always complete by the time it enters into consciousness. And so you know first what it is, where it is that your attention is focused, and then you reverse engineer into what the sensing experience of that is like. Is that making sense? The only example I can reliably think of where that that process would be sensing first and then making it into something is if you hear a sound that you don't know what it is and that process of not knowing what it is lasts longer than a half a second. So it enters into consciousness and hasn't yet been fixated because uh, the body mind can't identify what to fixate it into. You may notice it tries something and that seems to work, but if there's evidence that that wasn't correct, it releases it and then tries again to fixate it. But most of the time, you'll have the experience of noting things that you already know what they are, and then you have to reverse into understanding what the sensing of it is. That making sense? No. 
That's totally fine. That's why we do this practice so that you can see that. <coughs> I can get it when I'm actually meditating, but I hadn't really considered what the what the noting was. So I, I'm kind of making this conceptual. I think it works when I'm meditating, but um, so we're doing this basic here field. When we move into the second, which is conditionality, we really pay more attention to mind and where mind is pointing our attention. Here, we're simply not restricting or directing our attention in any way. We're just allowing it to move from object to object. And then discerning merely the knowing what it is from the experience of sensing it. <clears throat> It's easier to detect sensing in the body than say hearing or seeing. What is the, <clears throat> the sensing experience of seeing like, right? So what you're doing is watching the, the flow of experience, but it, it's hard to unfixate it to, to just be in the vibratory energy of it. But eventually as you do the practice that will develop to the point where you, you have some agency in whether you fixate it or not. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> Shinsen calls this flow. So flow experiences begin to come, become more available to you and everything doesn't appear solid. Is that making sense? I think so, yeah. So let's go ahead and do some practice. I'll start with a preliminary uh, concentration practice and I'll do it basically as like a pop quiz so that you can... Um, <coughs> see whether or not you've developed enough basic concentration that you don't need to spend time intentionally developing concentration. But if you can't pass the pop quiz, then don't cheat yourself out of making your practice easier by intentionally developing the concentration. It is so much better to do the concentration development first and then go harder into the Vipassana side than to have frustrating practice because you can't concentrate well enough. So any comments or questions about that practice? Christian. I was able to concentrate during the concentration portion just fine. And then I was like dozing hardcore during the uh, <laughs> part. So that's the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Oh. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that sloth and torpor is different than tiredness. It comes up when uh, the mind is interfering with itself so that it doesn't have to go into the material. Um, so um, there's some things to do about it, you know, straighten up, see if that helps, open the eyes, stand is the usual uh, set. Uh, I like to recommend standing on a chair if it's really bad because the body mind will then fight with itself about whether to fall or stay awake. Um, and then also walking <clears throat> is one way to do it. But what's interesting is that the mind is putting you to sleep so that you can't discover something. And that's one of the things that makes the investigation of sloth and torpor interesting. What is it in a simple see or feel meditation that uh, the mind doesn't want you to know <laughs> you don't have to answer it's a rhetorical question that, that's what makes it interesting to explore in terms of the sleepiness 
Philip and I, years ago, uh, would do yaza. Uh, that's how I overcame slop and torpor. I think I did 14 yazas in a row with you back uh, in 98 or 99. When was that we were doing? If you know what a yaza is, uh, we would meet at the, the center at 10.30 and then we would sit all night long. And then we would sort of camp out and then the next day they had a sit we would sit all day. Uh, do you remember doing that? <laughs> and then we would go home and crash. And then we would get up and we'd go sit the next Sunday morning at the, the Shinzen used to have a center uh, in West LA. <coughs> and uh, at that time, I was uh, trying to be the, you know, the macho meditator who sat on a cushion. And I have terrible back problems. And so I would haul in these huge bags of, of back jacks and cushions and pillows and everything else. And I would make this kind of pillow throne that I would then sit in agony on. <laughs> it was such a great uh, a moment of insight when I just could sit in a chair. <laughs> do you remember that one night, Philip, that we were doing, you do a sort of Zen fast walk in the middle to the great things. And we went out of the, the Zen, it was the Santa Monica Zen Center and we came out of the center and shot down the alley, this centipede of meditators. And we rounded the corner and there's a liquor store right on, um, between 10th and 11th, um, um, I think it's Broadway. And, and the police had thrown up like, four or five gangbangers and our little centipede takes the corner and the police and the gangbangers all turn and look at us and we just keep going and turn the corner. <laughs> it was I hilarious. Don't, I, don't, I don't remember that, but. <laughs> <coughs> anyway, it was one of the highlights of Yaza. Um, <coughs> all of these hindrances you, you uh, investigate with you know some interest and then they, and they begin to resolve as you see what it is that they're actually doing. Good. Someone else? <coughs> Juliet? Hi, it's me. I'm using my daughters. <laughs> um, I, have I a always hope that it's going to be her. <laughs> no, she doesn't meditate anymore. She stopped a while ago. Uh. Remember, she used to be able to do 30 minutes, but. Uh. So I know. I <laughs> yeah. still have her drawing from that retreat. Uh, oh, really? She doesn't remember it. And then I was like, remember, it's George. He's like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, during the concentration, I think I was able to concentrate mostly, but sometimes I would have thoughts, but I wasn't like pulled away from it. Like, so that's still okay, right? Yeah, totally. Okay. And then, so the last thing that we're supposed to do the separating the conceptual reality from the sensation. I didn't really know what the hell school was going on. So I didn't understand what that practice, I mean, I understand what the practice is, but I, don't, I didn't really understand how to do it. Well, it's just the same, knowing where your attention is and then soaking into the sensing experience. So I consciousness sees light and form, I mind consciousness sees things. Um, Ear consciousness hears vibration, ear uh, mind consciousness hears sounds of things in particular. So for instance, I'm listening 
to a helicopter at the moment outside my window. But then I can reverse engineer in just the sound without making it into helicopter sound. Is that making sense? Okay. But what about for visuals? In sight space, um, there's a subtle vibratory activity. And so there's a kind of soft flow in the visual field, but everything is solid, uh, appearing. Everything is already formed. So that to, to come into a, a visual experience where it's not fixated in pure sensing would really just be sort of a pointillated flow of colored dots that aren't settled in anything. Um, and what happens if you're not seeing anything, like if it's just sea rest? Well, then that's with eyes closed and that, that's just sea rest. Okay. So you would know that. The sensing experience of sea rest is what the sensing experience is, and making it into sea rest is something else. So you're supposed to be able to separate the two? Yes. I find it really hard. Okay. The only one that I can vaguely do is like feel, feel, because when I have, even when I have feel in, I guess like an emotion, I could separate that from the physical sensation. Right. But the fear and the sea, mm. they're almost like impossible. Right. So that's um, uh, where you want to begin to practice so that you can get the resolution to see clearly that the sensing experience, ultimate reality is not conceptual reality, the thing you make it into. Why this is important is because what, what you'll begin to discover is that you can take ultimate reality, the pure sensing experience, and depending on conditioning or the distortion of the mind, make it into a wide range of things. Um, this is a very Buddhist uh, idea. In the West, we're conditioned that we see what's out there and we create a working model within us. And that it's largely a direct transfer of what's out there into the working model that we create inwardly. That's going back to Aristotle, that's those ideas. Uh, Epicurus said that sometimes if you have strong emotions, it affects the way that you, it affects the working model, but it's still largely coming from outside in. In Buddhist uh, thinking, we take the sensing experience in, we create the working model internally, and then we project that outward. And so that depending on the quality of the mind and conditioning, that sensing experience can be made into a wide range of uh, outcomes. <clears throat> Do you notice that when, when you're sad, the world looks differently than when you're happy? Right? That's that process. So the mind state affects the way that you create the experience of what's happening. And so the first uh, step in, in being able to see this clearly is to separate the sensing experience from what you make it into and to be able to hold them as separate so that you can begin to compare the pure sensing experience to what you make it into. And then begin to reveal the distortions that might be present or the, the mind is equanimous, the accuracy of what you're creating in terms of conceptual reality. Um, it, it will begin to reveal the view. And the view is something that, that we, we work with quite a bit in the metta vipassana side. Uh, so that we can see whether the mind is uh, creating an accurate reflection 
of what we're sensing or whether it's distorted. The Buddha used the metaphor of a mirror, which was a dark glazed bowl filled with water. The mind is equanimous. It's as if the water was still and clear. And so the reflection of the mind of what we're experiencing is an accurate representation of what's there. But if the mind is imbued with lust, it's as if the water were dyed a bright color. And so the reflection off the surface of the mind, off the surface of the water, is distorted by the infusing of color, of brightness. <clears throat> Have you ever uh, fallen in love with somebody and looked at them and they look just completely glowy and delicious? And then six months later, you're looking at them and wondering what the hell happened to the glow? <laughs> if the mind is angry, it's as if the water were boiling, right? <clears throat> How clearly do you see things when the mind is really angry, when we're really angry, or does it distort that perception of things? Uh, sloth and torpor, restless and agitation, doubt are the, are the uh, conditions that the Buddha described in his uh, instruction. But we can expand that. I like to talk about attachment uh, uh, activations as distorting in a particular way. And that if you can begin to recognize them, then you can begin to uh, employ strategies to settle the mind so that you can come back into a more accurate experience of what's happening. <clears throat> but the first step in that is this process of separating, sensing from what you make it into. That's this knowledge uh, that discerns uh, mental from physical phenomena. But <laughs> let's leave that here because we're out of time. I do have a virtual retreat coming up in June. If you're interested in it, take a look at that. It's on the website. I have uh, a series of day longs uh, for the meditation and attachment level one starting in July. And then we will be uh, starting another level two in, in September. And then... <coughs> Being optimistic about the pandemic unfolding in a good way, we might actually do the, the year-end uh, retreat in person, which might be something to consider going to. But I don't know yet because if, uh, if people don't get vaccinated, there is gonna be a surge from the, the, the summer uh, relaxing of the restrictions and that could prevent it. Um, I offer the teachings freely, but I, I do hope that you'll support me by making a donation. Um, your donation in any amount uh, helps support me, but also the work that Metagroup is doing. Of course, if you're not resourced, uh, please feel free to come and practice with us. The community is happy to support that. You can find a link for a donation on the website or if you've got an email about the class. Thank you for coming and we will see you uh, somewhere along the path soon, I hope. Good to see you, uh, Philip. Yeah, great to see good, you. Good to I'll see you, on. Arthur. I, I'm now seeing you. You're well? I'm well. I'm glad. Um, it would be nice to catch up with you. <clears throat> All right. Bye. 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 Bye.